0: with me please this evening in Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23. We wanted to put into our worship this week and next some of the Thanksgiving hymns in our hymn book as we lead up to the Thanksgiving season. We're hear a few more uh, in that vein next Lord's Day morning as well. And then of course our Thanksgiving meal together next Lord's Day evening. Which I understand is a tradition of our church that we've done in years past, but we haven't done it in some time. So we're reviving one of our fellowship dinners. So that will be a good time. Well, Matthew 23, we come one more time to this chapter tonight. We'll finish Matthew 23, perhaps even wade into a few verses in Matthew 24, because they are both connected. But let me read to you from Matthew 23, beginning at verse 29. Hear now God's word. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen, and let's pray for God's help this evening. Father in heaven, again, this is your word, and it's powerful. Spurgeon compared it to a lion. We don't have to defend its power. Just set it free and let it go to work. Father, I pray tonight you would do that. Your word is beautiful. It is lovely, it challenges, it It rebukes, it corrects, it encourages, it lifts up, it edifies. Lord, it's our portion, day and night, because here the voice of God speaks, the spirit of God speaks, and brings us to know you, the one true and living God. The Bible is the means to that end, that we might know you. So turn our eyes to Christ tonight, to hear his word, to fellowship with him, to have communion with him to go out to serve your people and to serve wherever you place us in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We come tonight to the end of this confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. A back and forth that's been brewing since he entered Jerusalem a week ago on the triumphal entry And now bubbling out in this long extended verdict that he's issuing against the religious leaders. And we have seen it in terms of warnings. The opening of the chapter warns against their teaching. And then in a series of woes. Seven woes in which he issues his judgment on the nation for their religious failings. The first six go in pair so two woes two woes two woes and then this final seventh woe and we looked at the first six last week the first two speak of keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven how through their teaching they keep people from entering God's kingdom the second woe dealt with their or excuse me the second pair of woes focused on their distorted perspective how they've placed uh, concern with details before the basic principles of religion and ethics and lost sight of what God cares about overall. And then the third pair deals with this outward and inward piety, how they appear versus what they really are. And together you get a picture of how Jesus understands the concept of Hypocrisy. On one level, maybe the classic understanding of they say one thing but their actions are different, we were moving towards there when we look at you know the outward and the inward purity, but, but a fuller picture than that. A concern with things that at the end of the day aren't ultimate, and a blindness to what really matters. So that the hypocrisy is one of deceit in that knowing God is offered, but the reality is much different. And as the leaders of a nation, as the leaders of Israel's religious and spiritual life, Jesus holds them accountable. Though we will also see he has things to say uh, for the general folks as well. So let's look tonight at this last woe, the seventh woe, because this brings the whole denunciation to its climax. Here, Jesus charges the religious leaders with being complicit with a whole history of rejection of God, including the murder of God's messengers. And of course, that will loom large in where Jesus himself is heading. So this woe begins here in verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say... If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So here we have it one more time. There's a certain appearance. They make a pious protest. Hey, we would not have joined in with those who stoned or killed the prophets long ago. And in fact, we want to honor those prophets by decorating their graves and showing how much they reverence them. Now, Jesus never comes and gives the direct. On the other hand, this is the reality. But he gets at it in verse 31 when he says, So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Well, how does Jesus arrive at this conclusion? Because this group of religious leaders are currently not listening to God's prophets. They did not listen to John. And now they are not listening to Jesus. And so that puts them in the same camp as those who rejected the earlier prophets. And what is the cardinal sin? How can you tell that someone is rejecting a prophet? Because they are not doing the will of God. And that's what a prophet does. The prophet arises and says, we've gotten off track from doing God's will. And we need to get back on the right track. The prophet is able to read the word and see how the word should shape the people's conduct and their identity and their existence. And the prophet can see where competing interests have come in and caused them to go down a different path. Maybe one that looked barely different at the beginning. But the long-term fruit results in what Jesus is dealing with here. A group of people whose marks aren't those that God originally commanded. And so the prophets arise and say, hey, we made a wrong turn somewhere. It may be a long way back, but we've got to go back and we've got to get back on the right path. And that is often resisted by the nation of Israel. So often when it's hardened into this way of life, there's great resistance to going back and repenting and doing the will of God. That's what John called them to do, repent. You know, be baptized here in the Jordan River. That The nation needs reform. We've got to go back to the beginning. Remember when you crossed the Jordan to take the land of Canaan? We've, we've got to have a fresh start here and a new living out of our identity as the people of God. Jesus came along and took that message and ran with it. Took it to the next level. The kingdom of God is here and it's here in me. And here's the great reversal that's coming. If you don't follow my way, of knowing God and living out your identity as his people the leaders are not listening to that and so you know what that means they're in the same camp as those who resisted Jeremiah and those who wouldn't listen to Isaiah and those who wouldn't listen to Elijah or Elisha they may say oh we honor these prophets but they're really the descendants of those who killed the prophets and so Jesus says there in verse 32 go ahead then Complete what your ancestors started. I don't think Jesus is saying, oh yes, send more, who cares? He's just recognizing, look, this is how your opposition culminates. If you're rejecting my message now, well, the next step is to take my life. And Jesus can look ahead and see where that is going. The same idea then is in verse 33. You snakes, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Again, not so much... We know the answer to that, right? If you don't want to be condemned to hell, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he saying there's no hope for them? No, I think he's looking at them and saying, you're just headed down a path. And that path only ends one way, in the condemnation of hell. But the kind of people you are becoming pardoning hardening yourselves into. I, I think of the words of Jesus, the unpardonable sin, you know, a warning about a line that when crossed, there's just no coming back from it. Now we read in the book of Acts, many priests became obedient to the faith. We read in John's gospel of Nicodemus coming and wanting to you know, secure Jesus' body there or speaking up for him along with Joseph of Arimathea. So it's not to say that none of the leaders ever saw the light. But Jesus just sees them They're like a snowball rolling down hell. And unless God's grace radically intervenes, uh, then that is not going to end well. In fact, when Jesus goes off the scene, as he will soon because of uh, their taking of his life, he recognizes that more messengers will come, but it will not go well for them either. Verse 34, Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Now, interesting that Jesus uses the language of, Prophets and sages and teachers. We, we read in the New Testament more, pro, we do read of prophets, but we also read of apostles and, and other pastors and groups like that. Well, Jesus is doing the Jewish terms that would have been immediately familiar to his audience. He, he's shaping it in an Old Testament kind of frame here. He's going to send his own disciples out. And they'll make new disciples and those will go into the world. But Jesus warns this audience that you will be resistant to them just as you have been resistant to me. And so, verse 35, eventually, judgment will come. And so, upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come On this generation. If you don't listen to the prophets, then judgment comes. And again, in many ways, this is just standard Old Testament prophetic language. Don't take this the wrong way. There's a sense in which you could set a passage like this in the Old Testament. Matthew is a New Testament book on purpose. But there's a strong continuity there between what the prophets of old said and what Jesus is saying. They they warned them, you know, in the time of the judges. You're not listening to God? Discipline comes. They get in the kingdom. Don't reject me and asking for this king or bad things will come. They get the kings. And it's, don't fail to listen to me or you're going to go into exile. You're going to lose your nation. This is just standard prophetic language that Jesus is using here in condemning this group of Religious leaders. And notice, by the way, the way he phrases it. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Abel we know from the Cain and Abel story. There in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Zechariah is a character referred to in the book of Chronicles. Why would Jesus refer to somebody From Chronicles, because in the Hebrew Bible, the order of the books begins with Genesis, as it does in our Bibles, but ends with Chronicles. That is the last book in the Hebrew canon. And so Jesus is simply saying, from A to Z, from the beginning of the story to the end, those martyrs cry out to God to see and take vengeance, and eventually God will. As Jesus says in verse 36, all this will come... On this generation. In other words, on this group of people. The group of people that hear my words. The, the judgment will come to a culmination on this group of leadership. And the nature of that judgment, that is what will be spelled out in the next chapter, in chapter 24. But notice then the culmination here. The end of his Denunciation. So we've, we've had warnings of teaching, and we've had woes about teaching. Now we have a warning about the coming judgment. So judgment has been announced, and now Jesus will begin to spell out what all that will entail. And in shifting the focus to the judgment that is to come, you also have a shift in focus from the religious leaders to those who have followed them. So notice verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And the you there in verse 27 there, it is plural. You know, Jesus has spoken to the religious leaders, but now he wants to broaden that out. Oh, Jerusalem, <coughs> This whole city, you all are involved in this work. Again, doesn't mean there weren't loyal followers of Jesus. He'll, he'll address them in the next chapter. When you see these things happen, flee to the mountains. But for the leaders and for those who are complicit with them, who were happy to go along with that regime and follow in that spiritual blindness, then Jesus says, danger, warning, Judgment is coming. And, and I didn't want it to go this way. I, I longed to gather you. I offered you the good news. There was this merciful, compassionate embrace, you know, the way a hen gathers her chicks under, under her wings, that tender, gentle imagery, but they will not listen. So Jesus warns them that they, therefore, uh, are guilty of the same kinds of things, And will therefore suffer the same judgment. Notice he says there in verse 37, you kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. That's the charge he just laid on the religious leaders. Now he lays it on Jerusalem as a whole. He says, how often would I gather you together? Again, like the prophets who just continually offered salvation. Said, don't trust in humans, don't trust humans. In those alliances. Don't trust in those forces. Trust in God through the the prophetic message over and over. He won't disappoint you. You won't be ashamed. But if you fight Him, then trouble comes. And so, therefore, verse 38, Jesus says, Look, your house is left to you desolate. It's, It's reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision of the temple. Remember where God begins to progressively move further and further away from the temple. He goes out I think on the roof of the temple first then over on the Mount of Olives to watch the temple and then further away into the east. He just progressively leaves his people because they won't listen to him. And Jesus basically says your house is in an abandoned condition. Imagine a house that's been condemned because it's fallen apart so bad. All the people are out. The only thing that remains is to knock it down. And that's what Jesus is saying is the case here. Now the people don't see it that way. They think it's great. We'll we'll, we'll see that from the disciples in in just a moment. But Jesus is saying the true reality is this is spiritually desolate. So the only thing that's left to do is destroy it for judgment to come. And so verse 39, he says, So you won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was the language that the Galilean pilgrims used on the day of the triumphal entry. And again, some have sometimes wondered, okay, so Jerusalem welcomed him and then they didn't? No, Jesus has gathered this entourage, so to speak. He's, he's gathered a group of pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem with him. And when they enter on that day, it's the pilgrim saying, here he comes, here comes the Messiah, and you all should welcome him. That's language of welcome. It's the inhabitants of the city that then say, who is this? We don't want this man. Crucify him, They'll cry out. A week later, and so Jesus is saying, You won't see me again until you welcome me. If you want me restored to you, then you must welcome me. And so Jesus will go out of the temple and he will not enter it again during his earthly ministry. And so despite the fact that now we find ourselves at a chapter division, don't let that throw you because verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24 actually bring the current discussion to its climax. So Jesus entered the temple dramatically there on the day of the triumphal entry. Now he will exit the temple dramatically. As I said, the last time that he leaves, he'll never go back. To the temple, for again, its future is destruction. The the earthly focus of the presence of God is going to change. And so we find these words in verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Don't you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So there's Jesus going out of the temple, as I said, in dramatic fashion in warning of its coming destruction. Now I do want to pause here just for a moment to observe that even in this, there is the gospel. When Ezekiel saw the Spirit of God, God's presence leaving the temple and going east, on one hand that was judgment. God's moving out of his own house. But guess where the pilgrims, or no, it's not the right word, the exiles, guess where the exiles will be taken when Jerusalem was destroyed? To the east, to Babylon. And that's where Ezekiel would actually see the presence of God in that magnificent vision that opens the book, and God continues to visit him throughout that book. God's left judgment, and yet God's going to go where the exiles are going. Well, Jesus says, I'm leaving the temple, and this building is going to be destroyed, judgment. But what other temple is going to be destroyed? The temple of Jesus' body. That's what he's been announcing from the very beginning. You don't like what I have to say, and you stone those who are sent to you, and you're going to kill me. But if you tear me down, God will raise me up in three days. Why? So that forgiveness can be offered to his enemies so that he can build a new temple of God, of Jews and Gentiles being the spiritual house that offers sacrifices to God. So even in the midst of judgment, see the good news of the gospel. Now as I've said, Jesus refers to the temple as basically a condemned house. That's a pretty offensive statement to make. In the middle of Jerusalem. But not only is it offensive, some might even consider it astonishing. And that's what you see the disciples doing with Jesus as he exits the temple. They come up and they call his attention to the buildings. It, it, it's almost as if they're saying, Whoa, 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 slow down, Jesus. Look at the temple. You think this is going to be destroyed? I mean, it's shocking just from an architectural perspective. It was a magnificent temple. It took decades to finish it. Sadly, the work just finished right before it was actually destroyed. I think it was still ongoing at this point. So just try to imagine their shock just from an architectural standpoint. But not only that, this structure is central to Israel's worship. This structure is central to Israel's identity. Got a great size, got a great history, got a great meaning. And so they almost are like, Jesus, really? How could that actually come to be? And yet Jesus says there in verse 2, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It may be impressive, but it's going to be destroyed. Again, Exactly what the prophets before have said. Jesus echoes that tradition. And that message will be used against him at his trial. This one said that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Again, this kind of message is sacrilegious. It's it's unpatriotic. And yet Jesus says this is what is going to come. So it just reminds us again as a church and as Christians, the importance of doing the will of God, of looking closely at the scriptures, discerning the things that God wants us to do and being zealous to do them, along with the hope for those who repent, that God forgives on the basis of Christ's work and helps us to do His will. Now, what I want to do tonight, in the few minutes we have left, is let's just set up chapter 24. Again, 23 and 24 are strongly connected. I don't want to lose sight of that. Uh, by ending at this point. And we still have a few minutes. So I want us to notice how the speech of chapter 23 and the question from the disciples, or rather the astonishment from the disciples at the beginning of 24 transitions into the rest of the chapter. We do have a change of scene. In verse 3 we read, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So, Jesus has at this point left the temple, crossed the Kidron Valley, I believe, and set up on the Mount of Olives. But despite the change of scenery, the topic will remain the same. In fact, the setting, the new scene, is rather appropriate to continue this topic because the Mount of Olives is where the Lord's glory in Ezekiel's vision also stopped. As God was moving out of his house and moving out of his country, he stopped on the Mount of Olives. And then he continued to the east. So there's something about Jesus positioning himself here that is significant. He's continuing this story of judgment. And this is where he will give a detailed prediction of the coming judgment. Which again, that's the test of a true prophet. If the prophet says this is what's going to happen, then what they say must come true. So Jesus is going to put himself out there. This is what's going to happen. And down the road when it happens, that will vindicate me as a prophet. And the judgment that he announces here, he said back in verse 39 or verse 37, It will no, verse 36, third time's the term, this will come on this generation. And so now he unpacks exactly what that judgment will be. And so he announces here a coming judgment Judgment on Jerusalem that was historically fulfilled in A.D. 70. Now, I have to observe not everyone accepts that Matthew 24 refers to the destruction of Jerusalem. That is the historical or the traditional view throughout the history of the church for the most part. Matthew 24 was read as a prediction of judgment on Jerusalem fulfilled in AD 70, just a generation after Christ's earthly ministry. Many evangelicals today interpret much of Matthew 24 to refer to the future. They would read the majority of this chapter as describing the events that lead up to the return of Christ, and often interpreted as, Right before his return, very soon to his return. I'm going to show as we go through the passage, at least I'm going to try to show, that that view does not work. And that the best reading of this passage interprets it as a reference, again, to the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place In A.D. 70 That fits the flow of the chapters That fits what it means for Jesus to be a prophet And that is what I think Is the best way to read The chapters And so the best Or or, or the first order of business And and the last thing we'll do tonight Is simply structure the passage Let me just give you some indication Of why it's been read That way historically As we saw in verse 2 This part of the conversation, what Jesus is going to speak to, centers around his affirmation of the coming destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left on another. That's verse 2. He's just said, see all these great buildings? You're shocked that judgment is coming. I assure you, not one stone will remain. The disciples seem to understand from the get-go, based on Matthew 23, that destruction was coming on the temple. They don't see how that could possibly be. And so Jesus assures them it's going to happen. And so in response to that, the disciples ask Jesus a double question in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? Question 1. And what is the sign of your coming And of the end of the age. The disciples are concerned about two events the destruction of the temple that Jesus has announced. When will this happen? And the return of Christ. What's the sign of your coming? What's the sign of the end of the age? And if you wonder, now, now where did they get Jesus' coming from? What, what, what provoked that? Remember, he had just said, You won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he sees that they're hearing his, his, his prophetic denunciation and saying, Okay, so when does the temple get destroyed? And, and then what's that sign that you're returning, that you're being welcomed? Well, Jesus does speak to both events. When people see some element of the future in this chapter, I don't think that's wrong. But I don't think he speaks to his coming until much later in the chapter. So Jesus has been asked, when will the temple be destroyed? And what is the sign of your coming? Jesus will speak to both events. He will speak to the destruction of the temple, and he will speak to his return. But what I want you to notice tonight is is how differently he describes the two events. How he speaks to these two events differs significantly. And I think that's our first big clue, that in one part of the chapter we're dealing with one event, something that's near and soon, and in the other part of the chapter, a different event whose timing is unknown. So here's the outline I'll give you. In verses 4 through 35, Jesus speaks to the destruction of the temple. And I want you to notice how many temporal markers he uses. How many time words are in this section. I'm just going to scan through them. In verses 4 through 8, you have various events described. And in verse 9, it begins with, then you will be. In verse 10, we see the phrase, at that time. Verse 15, so when you see. Verse 16, then let those. Verse 21, for then there will be. Verse 24, at that time. Verse 29, immediately after. And verse 30, then will appear. And finally, verse 34, this generation will certainly not pass away. And so all these things have happened. Can can you sense that tight sense of this and then this and then this and then this and and you'll see this and then this and then this and and, and that's all going to happen before this generation passes away, this group of people. The same language you used back in chapter 23, verse 36. Truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Now, I want you to compare that with the general approach of verses 36 through 51. Verse 36 begins with a contrast. But about that day or hour, no one knows. The end of verse 39, that is how it will be at the coming of the son of man we don't have language about the coming of the son of man in the first section other than one verse where he says when i come everyone will see it in verse 42 therefore keep watch for you do not know the day on which your lord will come where in the first section he's giving us a lot of signs to look for and he says hey when you see this flee when this happens do this But later in the chapter, it's, you don't know what to look for. In verse 44, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Two questions and two different ways of speaking in the chapter that follow. One event, hey, it's coming on this generation and here's what to look for. The other event, oh, you don't know when that's going to be. And all you can do is, Be ready. So I think Jesus speaks as a prophet that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And when it happens, we'll vindicate him as a prophet. And then I think he speaks as much more than a prophet, one who will eventually return as king in power and glory. So we'll stop there tonight. Uh, We're coming into the Christmas season soon where we we have some different evening activities. So we'll get back to this chapter once or twice before uh, the year is out. But we'll return to uh, go through some of the details of chapter 24 next time we meet. For now, we take away Jesus' words. Listen to me and do my will. That is the path you want to walk on. So let's pray to that. Father in heaven, thank you again for your people here at Rova. Thank you for another day spent considering your word. And there's been much given to us today to think about from Sunday school this morning to the preaching time in the morning and, and teaching and admonishing once again and exhorting tonight. So Father, I do pray you'd help us to go out and be doers of the word. I just pray for each person here that we would have some sense of how to take what we've heard today and do your will this week and glorify you in loving and obeying and worshiping you and glorify you by loving others, doing good to those, and if you give us the opportunity, even taking the good news uh, to those outside. So Father, bless that end. Thank you for your people here. Go with them through the rest of the week. Keep them all safe. And may they know your love and grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.